Welcome to Let It Lopate at Large. I'm Let It Lopate. Where should we look for life beyond Earth? We used to focus on our closest neighbors, Venus and Mars, but recent scientific missions have indicated that some of the more likely sites may actually lie further away. For example, several of the moons of Jupiter and Saturn have vast oceans beneath layers of frozen ice, and there could be organisms living in their depths. Alien Oceans, The Search for Life in the Depths of Space is the latest book from Dr. Kevin Peter Hand, a planetary scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena, California. It's published by Princeton University Press and brings Dr. Hand to our show now. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, pleasure to be here. Now, why is the planet Earth in an ideal position to sustain life? Can you explain the, the Goldilocks scenario? Yeah, it's a uh, it's a bit of a puzzle um, uh, when you actually look at, at a lot of the details. Uh, planet Earth actually has more water than it uh, than it should uh, by comparison to Mercury, Venus, and Mars, the other rocky uh, inner planets. But uh, it's taking a step back and kind of considering the, the the original Goldilocks scenario, the original habitable zone for planets. Um, Early on in astronomy and planetary science, there was this concept that in order for a world to be habitable, it had to have liquid water on its surface in contact with a nice thick atmosphere, and then it was off to the races for life. Well, what? And and not too hot and not too cold. Right, and and so if you uh, if you're just the right distance from your parent star. Uh, you know, then uh, you could sustain that liquid water. If you're too close to your star, like Venus, uh, then you're too hot. If you're too far away, like Mars, then you're too cold. But if you're just the right distance, like planet Earth is from the sun, then you fell within what is now called sort of the, the traditional habitable zone. And, uh, and that's the classic context for uh, planetary habitability. Can life the only be sustained the if there... Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, well, but the, what these moons of the outer solar system are teaching us, these ice-covered uh, uh, moons like Europa, Enceladus, and Titan, they're teaching us that there's a new Goldilocks in town, a Goldilocks for habitability, wherein the, the energy for maintaining and sustaining liquid water comes not from your parent star, not from the sun, but rather from the, the tidal dissipation that occurs as these moons orbit their giant planets, that that squeezing and tugging and the the, the the mechanical energy as they get stretched and pulled by tides creates the heat needed to maintain liquid water uh, beneath their icy surfaces. So although we have always assumed that any life in space would have to be on a planet very much like Earth, uh, are we reasonably certain that our two closest neighbors, Venus and Mars, are not potentially hospitable for living life? Well, Venus is a very interesting story. Something happened on Venus about 700 million years ago or so that um, dramatically changed uh, the surface of Venus. Maybe it was a widespread volcanism. Uh, we just at this point in time don't know. There is the possibility that early on in the history of the solar system, Venus was 
perhaps more habitable than it is now. Uh, today, it's it's inhospitable. It's it's the, the hottest world in the solar system. It's got a runaway greenhouse effect. But there's there are a few uh, um, who think that it might have been more habitable in the past. And then with Mars, Mars could potentially be habitable today. But if it is habitable, it's within pockets of water that are deep in the Martian subsurface. The surface of Mars today is, by, for the most part, all accounts, um, not habitable. And when it comes to the search for life on Mars, we are primarily focused on the search for past life, uh, fossilized life as, as trapped in the rock record. So little, little fossils of microbes that might be in rocks on Mars. When we're talking about life beyond Earth, are, are uh, we limiting the search to simple organisms like microbes and, and slime moles? Is there any possibility of finding more complex organisms or even aliens, the stuff of science fiction? Uh, there is, and I'll, I'll get to that in just a, a minute, but I want to give slime mold uh, uh, proper credit. Um, so, okay. You know, keep in mind that... that uh, the discovery of even the, the tiniest of single-celled organisms, uh, not to mention a, a cohesive mold of, of slime, uh, that, would, that would truly revolutionize our understanding of biology and whether or not we live in a biological universe, one where, where biology is everywhere, or if we live in a universe in which life on Earth is, is a biological singularity, the only place where, where life has arisen. And what I mean by that is that um, from the, the, the tiniest of microbe to the, the craziest of, of, you know, us humans, we are all connected by the same tree of life. Uh, we all run on DNA, RNA, proteins, and ATP. And what I want to figure out and what many of my colleagues are, are intrigued by is the prospect of some other biochemistry, some other way of getting the business of life done, some independent origin of life with its own tree of life. And that discovery, uh, the discovery of a second origin of an independent tree of life, uh, could be catalyzed by the discovery of even a tiny little, little microbe uh, on the surface of Europa or deeper than its ocean or on the surface of Titan or Enceladus. Um, and so, uh, so slime molds on other worlds are important. Uh, but there is the prospect, at least I, I, I think potentially for Europa, uh, where its ocean may have oxygen dissolved in it. And as we all appreciate, oxygen is incredibly important to animals on planet Earth. And there is the possibility that the oxygen within the ice of Europa and possibly within its ocean below, that oxygen could have sort of motivated the evolution of multicellular organisms and given rise to more complex life. Little European squid or, or octopi is where my imagination likes to go. Until recently, weren't there many areas of our own planet that we believe couldn't sustain life? Um, how, is that, uh, how has that changed in just the, uh, the past few decades? Yeah, absolutely. The, the 
exploration of our home planet and and more and more research on our home planet has done two wonderful things. First and foremost, it has helped us obviously understand uh, biology on our home planet and, and the habitability and, and the sensitivity uh, of our home planet to these changes. We are, our home is rapidly changing and we need to protect planet Earth. And so our, our exploration of these extreme environments on planet Earth has helped us better understand climate change and, and uh, how biology is responding to it. Coupled with that, our discoveries in these uh, um, depths of our ocean and uh, in Antarctica and the Arctic and uh, dry deserts, et cetera, that work has had a, a win-win of also advancing our understanding for potentially habitable environments beyond Earth. And the lessons that we are learning is that microbial life, at least, is incredibly tenacious. Life arises wherever, or, or life can be found on planet Earth, wherever you bring together liquid water, the elements needed to build life, so things like carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, phosphorus, sulfur, and a smattering of roughly 48 other elements from the periodic table. And there needs to be some form of energy that life could harness. And this, this third keystone, the, the energy keystone, is where the extension to the deep, dark oceans of, of worlds like Europa and Enceladus uh, becomes particularly relevant. On Earth, when you look out, uh, you know, if you look out your window and, and see life on Earth, uh, the base of the food chain on the surface of the Earth is driven, of course, by photosynthesis. But in the deepest, darkest depths of our ocean, around things like hydrothermal vents, around these these geochemical systems that are very uh, rich with compounds like methane and sulfide and hydrogen, those are locations where microbes drive the food chain through chemosynthesis. So instead of photosynthesis, the base of the food chain is chemosynthesis. So they don't need light. Chemistry. They don't need light. And, and those microbes then grow off of the chemistry of those systems and help feed the other organisms and give rise to these beautiful uh, food chains that uh, include tube worms and zoarcid fish and, and all sorts of uh, jellyfish-like creatures. And it could be that chemosynthetically powered ecosystems are also what uh, exists within the deep dark ocean of, of Europa and also possibly Enceladus, uh, a moon of Saturn. Haven't microbes been found in sites as inhospitable as, as nuclear reactors? Yeah, the uh, um, microbes. Uh, here, here's the beautiful thing about microbes. Um, uh, when, a, a microbe is, is just a tiny little microscopic sphere of life. And yet microbes show incredible metabolic diversity. In other words, they can eat and chew on and survive on any number of different chemical reactions. And so they can, they can use the fluids coming out of a hydrothermal vent, or they can even harness uh, some of the, uh, the chemicals that are made inside a, a nuclear plant. Um, and there's, there's an, uh, just a, an amazing amount of diversity metabolically 
uh, within the microbial community. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, and I'm speaking with Kevin Peter Hand, a, a scientist at the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory, uh, where he has served as uh, Deputy Chief Scientist for Solar System Exploration. He's also leading uh, an effort uh, uh, to... Uh, to land spacecraft on, on the surface of Europa. We'll get to that later. Uh, he has helped lead expeditions to the glaciers of the Kilimanjaro, the, the dry valley of Antarctica, and the sea uh, ice of the, the North Pole. And uh, uh, I, I was wondering why James Cameron, whose films include Titanic, The Terminator, Avatar, and a number of other hit movies, decided to make a documentary about the connection between the exploration of our own oceans and the search for life beyond Earth. Yeah, well, uh, he also did The Abyss. Uh, and, uh, uh, I'm sorry I left that one out. Right, right. And so that, uh, in The Abyss, you can clearly see uh, uh, Cameron's love of the deep ocean and the, and the connection to uh, the prospect of finding a life beyond Earth or making contact with life. Um, and uh, yeah, so back in the early 2000s, uh, Cameron invited me to come along on this expedition to explore the deep sea hydrothermal vents. And at that point, no, um, no, no. Wait uh, a minute. Why, why you? Your field is planetary science, not oceanography. Why did he choose you uh, to to even go on an ocean expedition for, for that film? Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, a, We're talking uh, about 2003. Did we, uh, were we still unsure about the things that we are discussing today? Um, no, this, uh, at that point in time, uh, Leonard, the, the results from the Galileo spacecraft, mm. uh, which was orbiting Jupiter and flying by Europa, the results from that mission were really starting to come together and make a very strong case for uh, a subsurface ocean beneath Europa's icy shell. And that's part of where Cameron um, wanted to make the connection. Uh, he had explored the deep ocean as part of his work for Titanic, and he wanted to make a, a documentary about what the deep ocean, uh, what's going on in the deep ocean, first and foremost, and, and highlighting much of the exploration and many of the discoveries that uh, remain to be made in the deep ocean. And he wanted to make the connection to uh, the prospect of finding life within the deep oceans uh, of, of Europa and these, these distant moons in our solar system. And so that's how I got involved. I was uh, in the midst of doing my Ph.D. at the time, and I was working on Europa, and he was looking for a young scientist who could talk about Europa from the, uh, from the bottom of the ocean. So you went... Uh deep sea diving in effect and uh, in the book you include photographs that you took from a russian mir 2 submersible of life near hydrothermal vents over a half mile below the surface of the atlantic ocean uh, beyond everything else was that kind of scary <laughs> it's uh and why a russian yeah. submersible don't we have one of our own is this another Vladimir uh, Putin thing? <laughs> uh, this is this is this is back in the early 2000s when uh, when things were a little bit simpler uh, in terms of uh, of you know, partnerships and uh, and all that. 
but yeah, the, the uh, Russian Oceanographic uh, Program uh, had these uh, um, had two of the premier human submersibles, Mir One and Mir Two, and Cameron had used them for uh, filming the Titanic uh, as, as part of his um, uh, film, the Titanic. And then when uh, when he got the idea to um, make a, an IMAX documentary about the hydrothermal vents, uh, he contracted uh, uh, a ship and those submersibles to, to make the dives that, that we went on. And uh, as I described in the, in the opening anecdote of the book, um, <laughs> to use an appropriate pun, I, I definitely felt like a fish out of water. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up in a, in a, in a small town in the, in the green mountains of Vermont and, and the night sky, the clear night sky of Vermont is part of what inspired me to, to get into astronomy and, and captivated my imagination when it comes to the search for life beyond earth. And my friends and I, we, we grew up exploring the mountains and having all sorts of adventures in the mountains. Um, and I love the ocean. I had had the chance to visit Cape Cod and, and sort of see the ocean as a kid. But I had never developed that innate sense of, of being able to, to read the ocean. Uh, you know, I could read the mountains. I could listen to the trees. I could listen to the wind. I could read the clouds and understand whether a storm was going to blow in or what have you. But when I first went out to sea with, with James Cameron and team, um, that was an alien experience uh, for me in its, in its own right, uh, just being out on this, this massive Russian uh, research vessel uh, with a, a crew that was predominantly Russian, and 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 then the, most of the rest of the crew was uh, Hollywood folks, and everybody was wonderful. But uh, but here I was, just this sort of uh, young scientist, uh, and initially I wasn't going to go. Uh, but then a, a mentor of mine, an amazing microbiologist named Ken Nielsen, uh, uh, a professor down at the University of Southern California. Ken just told me, for the love of God, if you have any chance of, of getting in a sub and going to the bottom of the ocean, you better you better take this opportunity. And he was absolutely right. So I, I went out to sea. Gradually, I got to feel more comfortable with, with being at sea. Uh, I got to know the, the Russian engineers quite well, and I, I kicked the uh, proverbial tires of the, of the submersibles. Uh, and I had a fantastic time diving. Um, one of the things that was not an issue for me was was claustrophobia. The, the submersibles are very tiny, and and you fit three people into uh, about a a six foot diameter spherical space. And I had done a lot of caving in Vermont growing up, and so I was used to to tiny spaces. So so that part was fine. Uh, and I eventually kind of got my my sea legs, and and since that time I've been out to sea many different times and. Done a lot of work on sea ice and and uh, all sorts of exploration around the home planet. So, yeah, those those early days though they they were uh, uh, quite a, a new experience for me. Can you describe the deep sea hydrothermal vents and and some of the exotic creatures that you were able to observe when you were down there? Well, so the the first thing to appreciate is the journey there, and I wish that. Um, uh, that everyone could have this experience, and it's a mm. it's a hard experience to uh, to get on camera. Uh, Cameron and I talked about trying to trying to capture this, um, but um, uh, but it's really hard because there is no 
uh, ambient light. And what happens as and, and the and the pressure is a thousand times the atmospheric pressure at sea level. So you that's really right. have it, to it be, be careful. Should be. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it, it can be that that intense, uh, depending on how deep you go, and it's uh, uh, and and you feel that pressure um, not in the in the vessel. You're protected. You're in this 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 steel basically sphere that protects you, uh, and so when you're on the inside, you're just breathing regular air, and you've got little tanks and stuff, so you don't feel the pressure except for. Some of the unnerving creaks and sounds that go as things shift and accommodate the pressure. You'll you'll hear an occasional pop, uh, an occasional you know cracking and creaking, and it's a bit unnerving. Um, but but as you're falling through the ocean, and, and here again I, I kind of detail this in the book and the the difference between ocean exploration and space exploration. Uh, when an astronaut goes into space, and to be clear, I'm not an astronaut. I've never been to space. Hope to uh, maybe do that sometime. But uh, but when an astronaut goes into space, it is a very sort of violent experience. You are strapped to a rocket, and that candle is lit, and off you go. Uh, and so you're you're riding on a on a can of fire to get into outer space. When you go to the bottom of the ocean. It is a very sort of gentle experience uh, by comparison. Gravity is your friend, and, and you're not fighting against gravity the way you are when you go into outer space. Rather, gravity is pulling your submersible down, and you actually have weights on the submersible that make you uh, negatively buoyant, make it so that you do sink. And you're just kind of falling through the ocean at uh, maybe, you know, three, four, five, six, at most 10 feet per second. Uh, and as you're going through the water column, as you're going through the ocean, initially it's that beautiful blue because, of course, the sunlight is penetrating through the ocean water and you see that magical blue water. But as you get a few hundred meters down, the blue fades to black and the energy of our parent star, the, the signs of our sun begin to disappear. And that's where, for me at least, I really, uh, things got exciting. And, and what I would do on each of the, the nine dives I got to make, I would, I would put my, my head up against the, the portal. So in the Russian submersibles, there are three tiny windows about, um, I don't know, roughly eight to 10 inches in diameter. And I put my head up against the window and wrap a towel around my eyes so that I could look out at the ocean and the, the darkness and have my eyes adjust. And this is where it kind of got similar to astronomy. I'm, uh, uh, being an astronomer, I was long used to having to, to let my eyes acclimatize to the night sky. And when you're falling through the deep darkness of the, of the ocean, once your eyes adjust, then you start to see the, the display of fireworks from the bioluminescent creatures that are in our ocean's depths. And that was just astonishing. You would see this, 
this light shell, the, the purples and blues and reds and pinks of these jellyfish creatures that were, were firing off their, their bioluminescent displays as the submersible uh, uh, drifted on past. Well, how about the microbes? Kind of like, Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, the microbes are in the jellyfish helping make the bioluminescence uh, possible. And, uh, and so in order to get to the bottom of the ocean, you're passing through the ocean, seeing this bioluminescent fireworks display, and then you get to the bottom of the ocean. And at that point, now you have to find the hydrothermal vent. Were scientists surprised by the variety of creatures that are able to thrive in such an extreme environment? How do, do microbes, shrimp, and fish survive in the pressure that we were talking about over a thousand times, in some cases, the atmospheric pressure at sea level? Well, it's um, for us, it seems uh, incredibly remarkable that they could survive at such uh, high pressures. But keep in mind, these are organisms that have evolved in that environment. So they don't know any better. Their, their, their biochemistry, uh, even though it's DNA, RNA, RNA and protein-based, um, their biochemistry has just been clocking away down there in these depths without any concern for uh, how odd it may seem to us. You know, <laughs> To them, if, if they could think about the surface of the Earth, they would say, my goodness, how do these organisms survive <laughs> at such low pressures? You know, how do they survive? With so much light. Out, with so much light out there on the surface. And, and I love to think about life from the microbial perspective because, you know, one of the, one of the stories, one of the key stories of what uh, the hydrothermal events tell us about how life works is, is, is the story of symbiosis. And, uh, and this, I think, is a very beautiful story. You know, often when we're talk, taught about evolution, we're taught about survival, survival of the fittest and, and uh, predator and prey relationships and Darwinian selection. And all of that is obviously very important to the story of biology. But what life on Earth has also done and what life at the hydrothermal vents has, has helped elucidate is that the story of biology on our home planet is also one of symbiosis. It's one of mergers and acquisitions where, uh, where organisms cooperate for the greater good. Uh, all you need to do is look at our, our mitochondria in our cells or the chloroplasts in photosynthetic organisms. You know, the, the organelles, many of the organelles in our cells were once microbes in their own right. They were once bacteria living on their own, but then microbes began to collaborate and, and one became an organelle within the, the body of another. And on the macro scale, what you see at the hydrothermal vents are things like these, these shrimp uh, that, um, and, and, I need to just paint a picture for what life is like at these hydrothermal vents. It's not like life is eking out a living. When I talk about shrimp at the hydrothermal vents, there was one site that we were at called Snake Pit uh, in the depths of the Pacific Ocean. And at this hydrothermal vent, these 
shrimp were surrounding the vent. It was like a beehive of shrimp just flying in and out, uh, feeding their, their baby shrimp and harnessing some of the chemistry of the, of the hydrothermal vents. And they are, on the backs of all of these shrimp are these little packets of microbes that they cultivate, and those microbes help detoxify some of the, the hydrothermal vent water such that the shrimp can, uh, can utilize uh, those compounds. So, so they, none of these, relationship. so they couldn't live without the existence of hydrothermal vents, which I'm assuming are kind of like gushing hot springs at the bottom of the ocean. How deep are they, and when did we first learn about their existence? It, it, that's right. So the the way to think of a hydrothermal vent is essentially uh, to take a hot spring and put it at the bottom of the ocean. So think of of Yellowstone. Think of um, of Old Faithful, and imagine those hot springs on the bottom of the ocean. And what ends up happening, just given the, the, the fluid chemistry, et cetera, is that you build up these chimney structures, these, these mineral-rich chimney structures that form around the hot spring and cause the superheated water, and it's superheated because the pressures are so great that the, the water can get up to uh, 450 degrees Celsius, mm. Uh, and, and so you have these jets just erupting out of, uh, of these chimneys. And these hot springs are found in all sorts of different depths and all sorts of different regions around planet Earth. Um, most recently, I was up in, the, up in the Arctic Ocean as part of a, uh, uh, an expedition led by a team of uh, Norwegian scientists, and we were exploring the um, what's called the Gackle Ridge. This is a, uh, um, a risk zone across the Arctic Ocean, and it's very hard to explore because the ocean surface is, of course, covered in ice. And anytime you're deploying a submersible, uh, you're deploying it from a, a ship for the most part, and that ship needs to kind of keep track of, of where the submersible is so that when it comes back up, you can recover it. Well, up in the Arctic Ocean, we were trying to deploy this robotic submersible. And meanwhile, the Arctic sea ice is pushing our, our ship, our boat around and moving us away from the, the site where we thought there were hydrothermal vents. So it was a very challenging expedition, but, uh, but our team did manage to locate some hydrothermal vents uh, at a depth of four kilometers uh, beneath the, the surface ice of the Arctic Ocean. So fish and other creatures are able to live below the ice, uh, and uh, the uh, in the other uh, case you were describing the Atlantic, uh, they were living also at incredible depths. Uh, did their existence lead scientists to think that life might be possible in the oceans of other planets or, or moons? The short answer to that is yes. Uh, we now essentially have an existence proof for um, life not just uh, surviving, but life thriving under conditions, physical, chemical, geologic conditions that we think could exist within the ocean of Europa and possibly within the ocean of Enceladus. And 
you know, to come back to your question about the, the depth at which we found these things, uh, at which we found hydrothermal vents and, and deep ocean ecosystems. Uh, in 2012, I was on an expedition, this one again uh, with, with James Cameron and, and uh, National Geographic and, and Rolex helped fund a bunch of this. And this was an expedition to get back to the absolute deepest region of our own ocean, the Challenger Deep region within the Mariana Trench, which is uh, a little bit um, uh, southwest of, of Guam. And the depth of our ocean in the Mariana Trench is 11 kilometers deep, or about seven miles deep. And what we found at that depth is a microbial ecosystem that was not around a, a vigorous hydrothermal vent, but we think that some of the geochemistry that was feeding those microbes is similar to what we find around some hydrothermal vents, uh, hydrothermal vents doing what we call serpentinization. And then those microbes were feeding these shrimp-like creatures that we call amphipods. And, uh, and so we found this thriving ecosystem in the absolute deepest part of our ocean. And the pressures there we, uh, are comparable to um, the pressures uh, within Europa's ocean. So there now, again, we've got an existence proof. Now, the Arctic, the ice, uh, you say, the Arctic Ocean is covered with ice. Have conditions there changed as a result of, of global warming? And has that af affected uh, the, the lives of the, uh, the things that live beneath the uh, ice in the Arctic Ocean? We don't yet know what exactly is happening uh, to these ecosystems. But uh, one of the, uh, the beautiful aspects of our research program is that we are simultaneously getting a baseline for what's happening on our changing climate and how the melting ice uh, and the ecosystems, both in the Arctic and the Antarctic, how those ecosystems are changing through time. Uh, so we're getting that work done while at the same time building the tools and technology and instrumentation needed to uh, someday explore these, these distant alien oceans beyond Earth. Um, and just as one example, uh, this past November and December, our team was down in Antarctica in, a, in collaboration with the Australian Antarctic Division. And we were down there testing some of our robotic capabilities, and we were studying um, sea ice algae, this, this algae that grows on the underside of the ice. And our, our expedition was um, proceeding wonderfully, but then we had to leave a week early because the temperatures were so warm down in Antarctica that the, uh, um, the airstrip was melting. So uh, the, the airplanes come in and, and land and, and take off on a, um, a groomed uh, airstrip of ice. And in order for the, uh, the ice to be sufficiently hard such that an airplane can land, the temperatures need to stay at, at minus 5 degrees Celsius or, or lower. And when we were down there, in what is traditionally a, a very cold period of time, the, the temperatures were, were too high, the ice started melting, and we actually had to evacuate out uh, a week earlier than we were anticipating because of our changing climate, because 
uh, the temperatures down in Antarctica are rising so rapidly uh, because of climate change. It, it, it's, a, it's very climate change is very dramatic as you go uh, towards the poles, um, and of course, uh, in the more equatorial latitudes, we're seeing um, what uh, uh, what many have called uh, climate weirding. Uh, the storms getting more bizarre, the frequency of storms getting more, um, uh, the frequency and types of storms getting more extreme and more more chaotic. Uh, it's very we, we have we have to take a little break, and when we come back, we'll go into space with my guest Kevin Peter Hand. This is WBAI New York ninety nine point five FM, and the show is Leonard Lopate at Large. We thought of that song because of uh, your stories about watching the sky when you were a kid in Vermont and thinking about what was whether there was life beyond Earth. Um, well, after scientists, oh well, first let me tell people that my guest is Kevin Peter Hand, and his latest book, which is from Princeton University Press's Alien Oceans: The Search for Life in the Depths of Space. Uh, after scientists eliminated Mars and Venus as being habitable. Uh, what led to thinking about uh, the possibility of life in the far, farther planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune? Because um, I, I, they are really in so far from the sun, you would think that it would be very difficult for them to sustain life. Right. And just to be clear, we, we still uh, think that Mars could potentially have life that's alive today in the subsurface. And mm -hmm. Mars on its surface may have evidence of, of past life. Haven't we been digging into it, into Mars's surface in search of, of life there? Yes, but not. Um, uh, we, we still have a lot of exploration to do on Mars. And uh, I hope that in the future we can dig deeper and we can send more capable robots into uh, harder to access regions. Uh, so we, we still have a tremendous amount of work to do when it comes to the search for life on Mars. Um, and I, I, for one, would like to get beneath some of the, uh, of the ice caps of Mars. Uh, I would love to send a robot to explore the perimeter of some of the, the icy glaciers that we see on Mars. Uh, and really, at the end of the day, what, what I'm particularly interested in, Leonard, is the prospect of finding extant life, life that is alive today. And, and the reason for that is that, uh, coming back to our earlier discussion, I would like to find life where we could um, have a chance of understanding its biochemistry. You know, is it run on DNA, RNA, proteins, et cetera? In order to probe that question, uh, you need to find extant life, life that's alive. Uh, the large molecules of life, the DNA, the RNA, et cetera, they don't last 
long in fossilized form. They don't last long in the rock record. Uh, you know, this is why we don't have DNA of dinosaurs, for example. Um, and so part of what's particularly exciting about these alien oceans in the far reaches of the outer solar system is that these are worlds that have vast, uh, potentially global, salty liquid water oceans today. These are worlds where life could be existing or possibly even thriving today. And so if we were to send a, a robotic spacecraft to land on the surface of Europa, uh, we could search for signs of life. And those signs of life, those biosignatures, as we call them, would be indicative of uh, material coming up from the ocean below and possibly of life that's, uh, that's living in the ocean below. Now, uh, what, and so someday, uh, go ahead. What led scientists to start thinking about Jupiter's moons? Jupiter has how many moons? Uh, as possible sources of life rather than Jupiter itself. Europa, Ganymede, <laughs> right. uh, and a number, of, I guess, of the two most prominent moons of Jupiter. That's right. So, so Jupiter, um, it's a beautiful story, right? Uh, Galileo discovered these large moons over 400 years ago. He turned his telescope to the night sky. He looked at our moon. He looked at Venus. Then he looked at Jupiter. And around Jupiter, he found these, these four little points of light. And initially, he thought those points of light were just stars that he couldn't see with the naked eye. And Galileo, being a, a wise uh, scientist, he, he initially called those stars the stars of Medici, because, of course, the Medici family was funding his research, and he wanted to keep the money flowing. Uh, so, uh, as any good scientist would, he named them the, the stars of Medici. But... Uh, as we know, night after night, he charted the motion of those points of light, and he saw that they revolved around Jupiter. And he came to the conclusion that the four points of light that he saw were moons of Jupiter. And that, of course, was heretical, and that got him into trouble with the Spanish Inquisition, and he went under house arrest. Mm. But what Galileo catalyzed was a revolution in our understanding of our place in the universe. He helped put the final nail in the coffin of Aristotelian cosmology. This idea, of course, that the Earth is at the center of the universe and everything revolves around the Earth. By discovering that the moons, of, by discovering the moons of Jupiter and, and that they revolve around Jupiter, Galileo opened the doorway to the Copernican revolution. The idea, of course, that the Earth goes around the sun, all of the planets go around the sun, the sun is a star, and the stars that we see could be suns to their own planet. And so with those observations uh, and, the, and the, the Copernican revolution, we were set on a path where we would come to appreciate that the laws of physics apply not just on Earth, but also to worlds and wonders beyond Earth. And then with the advent of spectroscopy and instrumentation that we could use with our telescopes, we would come to appreciate that the principles of chemistry work beyond Earth. And then with the advent of the space age and our robotic exploration uh, and our examination of uh, our moon and of Mercury and Mars, etc., we would come to appreciate that geology 
works beyond Earth. But when it comes to the fourth fundamental science, Leonard, when it comes to biology, when it comes to the, the science of us, when it comes to the phenomenon of life, we have yet to make that leap. And part of what's exciting to me and many of my colleagues and hopefully to many of your listeners is that for the first time in the history of humanity, we can do this last great experiment and see whether or not biology works beyond Earth, whether or not a separate independent origin of life uh, has occurred beyond Earth, and whether or not we are alone or if we live in a universe teeming with life. Well, well I, I'm, I'm interested in finding out how we could even do that. But first, let's, let's back up a bit. How did scientists determine that there was a liquid ocean under the icy surface of Europa? Was the smoothness of its surface a hint that it has a, a liquid ocean? Right. So 350 years after Galileo, uh, astronomers using telescopes on the ground uh, use spectrometers to discover that Europa's surface is made of water ice. Is there evidence then, there's oxygen in, trapped in that ice? There is, the, uh, and that's more recent uh, observations uh, that uh, have determined that along with the water ice, there's also uh, molecular oxygen, there's hydrogen peroxide, there's sulfate, and there's also salt, which we think are from the ocean below. And so um, uh, in my book, I detailed the, the sort of three easy pieces of how we came to know that there's an ocean beneath the icy surface of Europa. And just briefly, uh, they involved the spectroscopy, which I mentioned, and then monitoring the spacecraft that have flown by Europa, in particular the Galileo spacecraft, and using the trajectory of that spacecraft to get at the mass distribution within Europa. And that revealed that the outer layer of Europa must be a low density material. And that data fits very well with ice or liquid water in the outer reaches of, of Europa. And then now the, the Galileo was the launched. Puzzle... Go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, oh, yeah the Galileo spacecraft was-, was uh, uh, In 1989, uh, that's a while. That's right, <laughs> exactly. and. Uh, uh, and it had a, uh, a challenging, uh, it, it, uh, uh, the high gain antenna didn't deploy, and there are all sorts of engineering challenges that, that occurred with the Galileo spacecraft. But it tr returned a tremendous about a, amount of information about Europa, as did the Voyager spacecraft. And, and the combination of those uh, spacecraft put us on a path uh, with a, a lot of information indicating that Europa has this salty subsurface liquid water ocean. And the, the final piece of the puzzle was the magnetometry results, the, the observations of, of Europa's induced magnetic field. And I won't get too much into detail on that, but it's be beautiful, beautiful physics. And uh, a lot of detail is provided in the book. But coupled now, with is that, Europa, is, Europa, is it the most, the, 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 the best sorry. candidate because uh, Jupiter also has a number of other moons. It has Ganymede, which is the largest moon in the solar system. Uh, I don't know if it has atmosphere. Uh, it has Callisto, which is uh, also a huge moon. Uh, do these also have a, any promise? 
They do. Uh, and along with, uh, so, so around Jupiter, we've got Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. And certainly for Europa and Ganymede, we have very good uh, uh, evidence for subsurface liquid water oceans. And then around Saturn, we've got Enceladus and Titan. Uh, and then around Neptune, we've got the curious moon Triton. Uh, and Pluto may have a subsurface liquid water ocean. So we now know that these oceans beneath icy surfaces in the outer solar system, these alien oceans are quite common. And if you um, sum up the total volume of liquid water uh, that exists out there in the outer solar system, it is in excess of at least about uh, 50 times the volume of uh, all the water found in Earth's ocean. So it's a lot of potentially habitable real estate out there. And when it comes to the top candidates for life, I rank Europa at the top, closely followed by Enceladus uh, and Titan. I think those are the, the top three candidates. And we do have a mission that has been selected to get back out to Titan and to explore Titan's surface, surface directly. That's a mission called Dragonfly, and that's being led by my friend and colleague, Ziddy Turtle, out of the Applied Physics Laboratory that's run by Johns Hopkins University. And this is just a, a stunning mission. It's a, uh, imagine a, 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 uh, a lawnmower, a riding lawnmower-sized uh, drone with eight rotor blades on it uh, uh, hovering over the surface of, uh, of this alien moon. And that's what's going to be happening in the outer solar system in the mid-2030s. The, the Dragonfly spacecraft will explore Titan's surface, looking for signs of life, and also examining these bizarre liquid methane lakes and seas that populate Titan's surface. Now, is funding a, an issue? Do you think that enthusiasm for the space program has diminished a lot in, in, since its early days following the, the landing on the moon because of funding? The, uh, this, the mission that you're describing, the Juno, uh, is uh, projected at $1.5 billion and counting. Right. So that's, that's the Juno mission, which is currently in orbit around uh, around Jupiter, and that's studying how Jupiter came into existence and is also helping inform our understanding of how, how planets more broadly form and how our solar system evolved. And, uh, and there is currently a mission called Europa Clipper, mm. which is being uh, built and developed. That will hopefully get to the launch pad in the next few years. Uh, and the Dragonfly mission is in about that price range. These uh, these endeavors are uh, are expensive, but keep in mind that they take place over a decade or perhaps even two decades. Uh, and so this is uh, a large number divided by a lot of, uh, of years in the denominator. Actually, and, you make a striking analogy between building robotic spacecraft to explore the solar system and building cathedrals which can take yeah. not only decades, but even a century. Is this only uh, a concern of uh, the United States? Uh, isn't there a, a European program? And uh, don't the Chinese and some other countries also have space programs? 
Uh, that, that's right. This uh, this endeavor endeavor is is humanity's endeavor. Uh, even though NASA is the largest space agency, um, there are many space agencies around the globe, and we as scientists um, and engineers, uh, even though we obviously have to obey our our, our country's uh, 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 laws and everything, as a as a community. Uh, we work closely together. Uh, the European Space Agency, for example, has got a mission called the Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer. And this is a fantastic mission that will also be launched in, in, uh, in the next handful of years. And it will head out to Jupiter, and it will fly by Europa at least twice, and then it will, it'll, it will go into orbit around Ganymede. And so by the late 2020s, hopefully we will have the European Space Agency uh, JUICE mission in orbit around Ganymede, and we'll have the NASA Europa Clipper mission in orbit around Jupiter making flybys of Europa. And I assume and that one of the missions. About, we're kind of out of time, unfortunately. Uh, but And there was so much more that I wanted to talk about, but uh, we only have an hour. And uh, my great thanks to you, Professor Kevin Peter Hand, whose latest book is Alien Oceans, The Search for Life in the Depths of Space, published by Princeton University Press. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you, Leonard. Uh, it's been a pleasure, and, uh, and I really appreciate your time. We'll have you back, and we'll talk more about this. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to Deborah Freeman, who produced this segment. Uh, don't forget that you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And we hope you'll follow our show pages on Facebook and Twitter and visit our website, LeonardLopinAtLarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. A big thanks to uh, anyone on the front lines of confronting the coronavirus, the medical workers, grocery store workers, delivery workers, and also our engineer, Reggie Johnson, and the entire operations staff back at WBAI who've made it possible for me to do this show from the safety of my home throughout this pandemic. We are preempted tomorrow for a special station programming, but please join us again on Thursday when legendary super agent Howard Bloom will discuss his memoir, Einstein, Michael Jackson, and me, a search for soul in the power pits of rock and roll. We'll see you then.